My name is Eric, and I want to welcome you to E3 tonight. We are in the middle of this series, actually almost to the end of this series called Fierce Landscapes. We're about five weeks in. And if you're just joining us tonight, I want to give you a brief overview and a recap of why, why this series, why now. We decided to do this series for Lent, which is a traditional season of the church. It's a season of reflection. It's a season of processing the things in our life that might be keeping us from knowing God more deeply, more fully. And uh, we decided to link up Lent with this idea of fierce landscapes, which is really just examining the way extreme circumstances, in particular extreme environments like the desert, there's other fierce landscapes like um, the mountains or, or uh, any, t- any place that is barren or just really difficult to live in, what these extreme circumstances do to our lives and what they do to our faith. Because when you find yourself in extreme circumstances, you're forced to wake up to realities that might not exist in your life otherwise. When we're, when we're just comfortable, we can go through the motions of our lives. But when you get in a place like the desert, when you get in a fierce landscape, it tends to squeeze you a little bit. And it's a little bit harder to ignore certain realities of our lives. And we decided to uh, look at it through the lens of, of God's people, Israel, the Israelites, their journey through the desert. 40 years after they were set free from Egypt before they went into the promised land. So they wandered in the desert in a very, very real way. And so we, we took the narrative and we're just looking at different waypoints and, different, and looking at different ways that they experienced desert spirituality. So we've looked at things the way God provided for Israel in the desert. Not necessarily a banquet that was all you can eat, but a day-by-day provision. And we looked at the way desert gives us an opportunity to change because when you're in an in-between place, when you're in an uncomfortable place, your mind opens up to new possibilities. We looked at how God gave Israel a guide in the form of the Ten Commandments, just a way to live and to know Him and to live with Him and each other. And then last week, Mark took a look at what happens when you lose sight of God in the midst of the desert and what doubt does to us as a people, particularly when we replace God with with something else in our life, whether it's a job or another person. And tonight we're going to be taking a look at an episode that happens actually just before Israel crosses the borderline into the promised land. So we're almost out of the desert. Easter's only two weeks away. Lent is almost over. But there is a couple more weeks in the desert. And there's a couple more things that I think the desert wants to teach us. So I'm going to be taking a look actually out of a passage of the book of of Numbers, which is a different account of the same time period in Israel's history. And I want to set the scene before I read it to you. Like I said, it, it happens when Israel is right on the border. They've been wandering now for 40 years. It's all started with them being slaves in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to set my people free because if you remember, God intends Israel to be Uh, the central focus of his restoration project for the world. 
That God wants to set the world aright. He wants to rescue it from its brokenness, wants to rescue us from our brokenness. And it all starts with Israel, but Israel becomes enslaved in Egypt. So God sets them free. He says, I'm going to take you to a land. Anybody remember what the land is filled with? The land is flowing with what? Milk and honey. And if you remember, I added in frosted flakes and fried chicken because that's what would be in a good land for me if I didn't have to watch my cholesterol and all that stuff. So God says, I'm going to take you to this place, this promised land, not so that you can get fat and happy on milk and honey, but because you're supposed to be the light of the world. Because Israel, I have a plan for this whole earth and you are a part of it. So they take off through the desert. They're not ready for the promised land. So God takes them in the desert to prepare them, to teach them, to grow them up a little bit so that when they get to the promised land, they are theoretically at least ready to be the blessing to the world. So they get up to the very border of the promised land. They're about to go in when all of a sudden God uh, somehow speaks to Moses and he says this. This is Numbers uh, 13. There'll be text on your screens. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men all tribal leaders of Israel from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. The text goes on to to give the names. If you skip down to verse 17, these are the instructions Moses gave to the men. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. And then it just adds it happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. So real quick, all Moses is doing here is he wants to know what they're getting into. And this is a a nation of freed people slaves and they're about to come into this land that other people live in it's not vacant so Moses simply says hey go in and find out who's there find out what grows there find out what we're in for because this is not a military empire that can come into the land beat up everybody they see and establish all of the the crops and the farms and the markets that they need. This is a nation of escaped slaves. So they say, we have to be a little bit sensitive to what we're getting into. It's a wise, wise choice. So the men go, and then uh, skipping down again to verse 25. This is what the text says. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. The text actually says earlier that they came back with a cluster of grapes that was so big, took two men to carry it. So the land is fertile. It is is producing fruit. And then they say, this was the report to Moses. We entered 
the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, which is where Moses told them to go. And the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, which was where Moses told them to go. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley, which was not where Moses told them to go. Real quick, Moses told them to go to the hill country through the Negev. And archaeologists have done excavations in the hill country that would mesh up with this period of time, as best we can guess, uh, for, the, for the Exodus. And what they found is that the hill country, where Moses tells them to go, is actually pretty, pretty sparsely populated. So when Moses says, go look at the hill country, he's actually being even more wise because he's saying, go to the place where not many people live. Go to the place that we can get settled that we can establish ourselves in this promised land before we have to go start clearing it out because that's what God said we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make a home here, but let's start in the place where there's nobody so we can just get our feet wet. But they come back and they say, well, we went to the hill country and, and there were some people there, but then we also went to the coast and we went to the valleys and there are a lot of people there too. And I want you to watch how this unfolds for these guys that are given this report. So Caleb speaks up. He tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. He said, let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we travel through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. So something happens in this exchange that struck me this week as I was thinking about. You see, the report that the, the men give is accurate, sort of. They come back and they say the land is bountiful. And they have these grapes to pull it. But then they go, but there's people there, which is true. They live in fortified cities, which if you know the story is true. But then they start adding things. They're giants, we look like grasshoppers compared to them, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. They say they're the descendants of Anak. And as best we can tell, nobody really knows who Anak is, but it's like a legend. They reference him a couple times, and it's, and it's almost like they're talking about the boogeyman. These giants live there. We are never, ever going to be able to conquer this land. And the people, Israel, freak out. They've come 40 years through the wilderness, 40 years to get to this moment on the border of the promise that God gave them. And these guys come back and they go, there are some really big people in there. 
there's some fortified cities. And instead of going, well, yeah, no one said it was gonna be easy. They lose it. In fact, if you were to read on in the text, it says, you know what? Let's go back to the desert. Some of them tell me, let's go back to Egypt. They say, why would you bring us out here to kill us? Let's go back to this other thing. And with that, what I started thinking about this week was this whole idea of fear. Because what happens in the Israelite camp is they experience a tidal wave of fear. In a report that is somewhat accurate, but a little exaggerated, they are ready to scrap the whole operation. And so I started thinking about fear this week. And what I want to start with is just a flat out dictionary definition. If you went to Google, this would come up. This is the definition of fear, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or is a threat. That's the definition. Now, I'm not a psychologist by training or anything like this, but I did some reading about it. Here's what the ingredients of fear are. There is a stimulus and then there's a response. This is what fear is made up of. In sort of primal language, the stimulus might be you're wandering in the woods and you see a grizzly bear. That's the stimulus. The response, I want to start with just a physiological response. Things happen in our bodies when we are confronted by fear. Our pupils get really big so that we can perceive things and threats coming at us. Hormones and adrenaline get released in our body so that we are ready to to, uh, uh, fight or run really fast. It's basically called the fight or flight syndrome. Anybody ever heard of fight or flight? So when we are confronted with a stimulus, our bodies react in a very, very particular way. But here's the way our bodies work against us when we're confronted with a stimulus. What goes away, scientists would tell us, is our ability to think. What gets suppressed is our ability to have logic and wisdom. So when the Israelites, I would suggest to you, are confronted with this fear, rather than thinking back or being able to think back on the promises of God and wondering for 40 years to get to this moment when the fight or flight affects them as a community, they're like, we're done. This is never going to work. We are not strong enough for this. Another unique aspect of fear is the idea that you don't even need a stimulus in order to produce the fight or flight syndrome. What they would say is that merely anticipating the stimulus for some of us produces the physiological reactions that we perceive. So not even a real threat can trigger this, the lowering of our ability to think. The, the preparation of our bodies to, to, to fight, but to not process information accurately. Uh, this is how it plays out in my, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about myself. 
and how this works in my life. Over, over the years, I've become aware that I have a fear of heights. It used to kind of operate a certain way when I was a kid. And it doesn't universally affect me. Like there, I have worked in skyscrapers. I've worked in really tall buildings, 30th floor, no problems. But in certain environments, in certain situations, my body reacts in a very particular way to fear. And in my house, we, we, uh, we call it uh, the, the sweaty, dad's sweaty palms uh, test. So whenever we start to experience something with fear, my son Levi will just walk over and he'll just like rub his hands on my hands just to see how nervous I'm getting when I get confronted with this. I want to show, uh, there's a documentary that came out a few years back called Man on Wire. Anybody ever seen this documentary, Man on Wire? I, I couldn't watch this documentary. Back in the 70s, a guy snuck up to the World Trade Centers before they were built, before they were done, stuck up to like 100, whatever the, the, the floor number is, and uh, took a powered bow and arrow or crossbow and shot a, shot a line from one tower to the other. And without a net or without a wire, he walked across. That's a shot before he steps out. I almost had a panic attack watching this documentary. I got about 20 minutes in, and I was like, I can't watch this. I mean, I'm just talking about it now. My hands are, I'm just going crazy. Uh, that's a shot of him that with his foot on the wire. That was a very real response to me. And I'm just telling you this to say that fear is not something that we kind of shrug our shoulders and go, oh, no. Fear is real. It affects your body. It affects your mind. It affected the Israelites mind. If you guys know my family, all you know that we just went to London and Paris. And in Paris, there's this thing called the Eiffel Tower. And we had got tickets to go up into the Eiffel Tower. That's us as we're walking up to it. And as I got closer to the Eiffel Tower, I realized that's a lot taller than I thought it was going to be. And so we get, and I know we're going up to the second level of the Eiffel Tower. And as I said, I used to be able to work. I can work in a tall building. But when I get around like open spaces, which hello, the Eiffel Tower is nothing but an open space, it starts to mess with me. But I'm like, well, am I going to pass up the chance to see this view of Paris? Or am I going to deal with this? So we went up and I found that if I stayed close to stuff, like I would find like the, the steel girder and I'd be like, I, I feel better when I stand next to this. And I kind of like... I go over here and I took some pictures, but that was going on inside me. That's a very real thing for me. And if you live life at all, you are going to deal with fear. There's not a person in this room that can't say that they, have, that they don't have a fear of something. And that fear affects you. And that fear will challenge your ability to go into the things that God has called you into. Because God said to the Israelites, I'm gonna set you free. You're gonna be the light of the world. I'm gonna give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, when they got to the border of that land, they freaked out and stopped because of fear. So much so, this verse just kind of jumped out at me, and I just want to pause on it. They said, uh, right at the end of that passage, 
the land that we traveled through and explored will devour anyone that goes into it. This is the very land that God said is going to be your blessing. So what type of mindset is it that says the blessing that you're offering me, God, is now the place that I'm afraid you're going to kill me at? Fear turns everything upside down. And we are not immune. Like one of my giants, you know, they come back and there's like, oh, these giants in the land. These fortified cities. One of my giants is heights. That's an easy one. I've got other giants. I think fear asks certain questions of us as people. And the first question that I want to ask you tonight is what are your giants? What are the things that produce fear inside you? And don't pretend that they don't exist. We live in a whole era. Every era has its giants. How about the economy? How about job markets? How about uh, international situations, North Korea, Ukraine? How about, the, how about the giants closer to home? How about the fear of being alone? How about the fear of not knowing what you want to do with your life? How about the fear of having parents that are growing older and not knowing how you're going to pay for that? How about the fear of growing older? What is the thing that you look at and that causes you to not think so clearly. Even when you believe things about God that you believe in all other areas of your life, there's some giant. And when you start thinking about it, no matter what God has promised you in the past, you forget about it. And you go, it'll devour me, God, if I go in there. So what is that for you? You have to answer that. I can't. And if you don't deal with fear, it costs. Uh, little trivia quiz. Does anybody know, uh, from a military standpoint, what the most costliest day of American military history is? Highest number of casualties in American military history. Anybody have a guess? What? D-Day? No. What? Christmas? We'll, we'll talk later. Uh, Pearl Harbor? No. Gettysburg? Close, but no. It's a battle called Antietam. 1862. 22,000 dead, wounded. One day. Worse than D-Day, worse than any day in the Afghanistan war, worse than any day in Iraq, 22,000. And the thing about it is, a lot of historians would tell you it didn't need to happen. This is General George McClellan. He was the commander of the Union armies at the time. McClellan had a reputation for being a very slow and hesitant general. Because one of his giants, if you've read anything about him, and I've read a very little about him, one of his giants was the fear of losing his reputation. 
So he got a gift right as Robert E. Lee invaded Maryland in 1862. And the gift was he stumbled across Robert E. Lee's battle plans. They were, they were, they were wrapped, uh, there were some cigars wrapped in paper. And when they unra unraveled the paper, these Union intelligence guys found Robert E. Lee's battle plans and his forces. And what the Union realized is that they outnumbered Lee almost two to one. Two to one. And if McClellan would have attacked then, the chances are Antietam never would have happened. He would have routed Lee. Lee's plans would probably have been foiled. But you know what he did? He did nothing. And so while he did nothing, Robert E. Lee found the best battleground that he could find in the, in the, in the, in the circumstances near a, a town called Sharpsburg in Maryland. And when McClellan finally got around to attacking him, 22,000 young men, and I imagine some women, lost their lives. All because of a degree of fear. Now, fear is not going to cost you necessarily a life, much less thousands of lives. But fear will cost you from walking into the things that God has called you to walk into. I guarantee it. So how do we deal with it? And this is where it gets kind of tough because Jesus talks about fear and he talks about worry and he talks about anxiety, but he doesn't give us any like nifty tricks. He just kind of says things and, and part of me goes, Jesus, are you crazy? He just talks plainly about the way things should be in Matthew chapter six. And I'm not gonna make a whole lot of comments about this. I just want you to read these words as he's talking to his disciples. In Matthew 6, starts with verse 24, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to, what's the text say? Worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Jesus says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you and you and you more invaluable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And he goes on. He says, and why what? Worry about your clothing. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you and you and you and you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't what? 
about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Then he says this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Like Jesus, I'm like, thanks a lot, Jesus. What a downer that is. <laughs> Today's trouble is enough for today. Here's what I want to suggest to you. In a way, fear or worry or anxiety is what I would call treasure dependent. And what I mean by that is related to where Jesus says in the verse just before this passage starts. In verse 21, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. And he also says, seek first the kingdom. And what I'm getting at is the idea that if we have a treasure that doesn't start with G and end with D and have an O in the middle of it, we are buying in to an opportunity to have fear for a long, long time. Because any treasure that we value above God just invites insecurity. It invites worry. It invites anxiety. And Jesus says, seek first. That's your treasure. Don't have a treasure above God. And if the Israelites would have not had, if they would have had a treasure that started with G and ended with D and had an O in the middle, when they got to the border, they would have said, yes, there's really fierce people in the promised land. Yeah, there's fortified cities. But you remember that God did this? Do you remember that God said this? You remember that God said he was gonna put us in this land for a mission, for a purpose? It looks dark and it looks hard, but let's go because that's what God said. But instead, I think they had a different treasure. When Jesus says, uh, wherever your treasure is, I think instantly my mind went to, well, treasure. Treasure is, treasure is easy. Treasure is, uh, you know, money, possessions. Treasure is status, power. Those are easy things. Don't treasure money over God. Don't treasure power over God. Don't treasure status over God. But you know, if you, if you just go up a little bit, if you go up to like a 10,000 square foot view, you know what treasure is? Treasure is anything you value. So what do you value? That list gets a little bit more dicey. Because I can value freedom. I can value my ability to make whatever decision I want to make for my life at whatever point. I want to go to this school. I want to do this with my life. Some of us can value our comfort. That's our treasure. God, my treasure is to not make me do anything that stretches me. Don't make me go on a mission trip because that's uncomfortable. Don't make me serve because that's uncomfortable. Don't make me do evangelism because that's uncomfortable. That's my treasure. Some of us, our treasure is our identity, our political identity. God, don't make me reconsider whether I'm 
a progressive or a Democrat or a Republican or conservative. God, don't make me consider anything about uh, my, my sexual identity or the way I label myself in, with my peers. That's our value. That's our treasure. Some of us would say, my ego, this is mine. My, I treasure my ego. God, don't humble me. Don't make me be second. And then some of us, and I, I, I talk to you guys, and some of us would say our treasure, and this is weird, but I think it's true, we treasure our sorrow above God. I'm holding on to this grief. I'm holding on to this tragedy. I'm holding on to something so much that I have put it now above God. And I treasure that above God now. And anything that you lay out in front of God is an invitation for fear to come. So the question is, obviously, the second question that fear brings to us is what are your treasures? What fights for God's primacy in your life? Because that will keep you from walking into the promised land. When that gets messed with, you will go, oh my gosh, there's giants in that land. I don't know if we can do this. So a couple more thoughts. I have a spiritual mentor in my life. I have a couple just older guys that just speak truth to me. And... uh, and they've been messing with me on some of these things, and particularly fears. And when they talk to me about fear, and they talk to me about surrendering fear to God and trusting God, uh, this one mentor of mine, he says this, uh, Eric, either God is or he isn't. And I'm like, did you say that again? And he says, either God is or he isn't. Either he is trustworthy, either he really does say, you know what, you're more valuable than the the wildflowers. You're more valuable to me than the birds. I'll take care of you if you just let me. Either God is or he isn't. And this is, I have to just say this over and over again. I'm not immune to this, guys. This is the journey that I'm on. God, I have a situation that's right now, that's today. God, will you help me? Either God is or he isn't. Either I go, God, I'm gonna trust you to bring me through this. Or I go, I'm standing on the border and I know what you've told me to do, God. But I don't think I want to. I think I'm going to hesitate. If you let fear govern, you'll never cross that border. You'll never walk into that thing. I would suggest to you that Israel had gotten more comfortable and their treasure was simply the desert. Their treasure was simply the mentality of saying like, hey, we've been wandering for 40 years. Maybe we'll just do 40 more. Instead of saying, trust God and walk into that place that God has brought you. Either God is or he isn't. And then the one other thing that Jesus says to us is that every time he says, don't worry, do you notice what he says after that? He says, don't worry about 
food. Don't worry about what you wear. Then he says, look. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. And the last thought I would leave you guys is, is, with, is that if you want to if you want to know if God is or he isn't, because maybe you're there. Maybe you're just like, you know what? I don't really know. Maybe I'm leaning that God isn't. I think what Jesus says is like, he just invites you to look. But looking involves slowing down and opening your eyes. Looking involves going, maybe I don't have this all figured out. Looking involves maybe saying like, man, you know what? I am living a fearful, anxious, worrisome life. And maybe what I need to do is take 30 seconds a day or five minutes a day or 30 minutes a day and look at what God's doing around me and open up my eyes to the way God takes care of people. And I could go, man, yes, there's some scary things coming down the road towards me but I believe that somebody is in control and they care for me and they won't desert me or abandon me and they will help me cross the border into the promise and the mission and the purpose that they've given for me. Would you guys bow your heads? 